0: God can sometimes feel like He's totally out of reach, and sometimes we can feel like we are standing at the back of the line wondering if He is ever going to listen to us or not. However, it's not dependent on us, nor is it dependent on what we are feeling. We can connect with God and we don't have to stand at the back of the line simply because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has pushed everybody to the front of the line. He has made a way possible for us to enter into the presence of God and talk with Him and have relationship with Him. There is no line to stand in because Jesus was torn so that we could enter into the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, where we're going to see how Jesus was torn so that we could enter into the Lord's presence. As you turn there, allow me to paint for you the picture that is given to us here. It is the day of the crucifixion and Jesus is hanging on the cross. The scripture says that towards the end of the crucifixion, as he gives up his life, that the veil in the temple is torn from the top to the bottom. The temple that is is referenced here is that of Herod's temple, so-called, because it was built during the time of Herod. He didn't really have that much to do with it, but it was built during his reign. The innermost part of this temple was called the Holy of Holies, and it was patterned after the tabernacle in the wilderness back in the Old Testament. Israel had gone through a number of different conquering situations by various powers, and so the original temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. They had rebuilt it. This is again the one that has been rebuilt. Not nearly as exquisite as the first temple that was built, but this particular temple featured that most holy place, or of holy of holies, which was the inner chamber. Just sort of use the example of like this sanctuary. If you can imagine out on Church Street being like a court, and then you had various courts as you made your way into the building, that was the way the temple compound was laid out. Once you entered the temple itself, you had to pass through a curtain to get into the first room, and only the priests were allowed into that first room. And it was called the holy place, and then you would enter into the second room but only one person could enter that room and that was the great high priest on the day of atonement so only one day of the year was the great high priest allowed to pull the curtain back and to go into the holy of holies or the most holy place. This particular holy place or most holy place again was separated from the first room by a veil. The veil was made of blue purple and scarlet yarns that were fine twined linen. It had cherubim, which were a type of angel that were woven into the fabric. And they represented that these angels guarded the presence of God. So that no one could just walk into God's presence. By the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, this room was empty. And so while there was this tremendous veil over it, if you went into that room... And only again the great high priest could, but he would go into a room that was empty... But it was a room that was empty, yet filled with the presence of the Lord. If you'll look on the screen, I'm going to show you a video that will give you a little bit more in-depth look at what this veil and the Holy of Holies was like.
1: In the ancient Jewish temple, a large veil blocked access to the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelled. It was a constant reminder that sin separated us from God. Nobody was allowed in except for the high priest, and then only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would pass through the veil to offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. This continued for generations because the sacrifice could never be good enough. Fortunately, it was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. 2,000 years ago, something changed. A new sacrifice was offered, a perfect sacrifice, one final sacrifice for all of time. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. He paid the ultimate price so that the sins of all men could be forgiven. At the moment of His death, the large veil in the temple the very thing that represented centuries of separation from God was torn, torn in two from the top down, showing that this era of separation was over. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the Holy of Holies once and for all time and secured our redemption forever.
0: And I would invite you, if you will, to follow along with a message outline that is in your bulletin. Jesus was torn himself so that he could tear that veil and we could enter into the presence of God. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, beginning with verse 45. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would have been from approximately noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Jesus Towards the end of the crucifixion experience, yells out to the Father, "My God, my God." He is trusting the Father, even in the midst of the agony that he's going through. He is quoting here from Psalm 22 in verse one as he cries out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" As he hung on that cross, he had been forsaken by Rome. He had been forsaken by Judaism. He had been forsaken by his disciples, save John. And now he found himself forsaken by the Father. By the Father God. Breaking a relationship of closeness that he had known throughout eternity. The epitome of loneliness. And why had God the Father forsaken him? Because God had placed on his son all the sin all the shame, and all the guilt of all of us on Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For our sake He made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In a way and by a means and through a miracle that we don't know and understand, as Jesus hung on the cross... The Father looked down upon Him and began to place on Him all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and all of our punishment. But God cannot tolerate sin in His presence. And so as He looked upon His Son with all of our sin resting upon Him, He had to turn away from His Son. And in those moments, Jesus knew a depth of loneliness that He had never known, a depth of wrestling personally with the filth and agony and punishment for sin. And that's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he went through that to be separated from the Father so that you and I would never have to be separated from the Father. He did with our sin in those moments what you and I could never do with our sin. I've got a lighter here. And if I take this lighter and I begin to play with this lighter. Now, back when I was a kid, it was playing with matches. We got more sophisticated now. We got lighters. But if I begin to play with this lighter, what's going to happen to me sooner or later? I'm going to get burned by it. And when you and I play around with our sin, sooner or later, we're going to get burned by it. If I continue to play around with this and get it close to something else, I'm going to set something on fire sooner or later. Every so often you hear of kids that are playing with fire, playing with matches, and they get it over close to something in the house and it sets the house on fire. And it can burn a house down. When you and I play with the fire of sin, we end up burning ourselves and we keep on playing with it. We're going to end up burning the house down. And the house that gets burned down is the house of our lives. We don't know what to do with sin. All that we know how to do with sin is play with it. And every time we play with it, we burn ourselves, we burn other people. And eventually, if we don't stop playing with it, we're going to burn the house down. Jesus doesn't play around with sin. He knows the destructive quality of it. He went through it on the cross for the purpose of tearing that veil open so that you and I can walk into the presence of God. He was torn in his body first, so that then the curtain could be torn, that curtain of separation. If you had lived back in that day and you walked up to that temple, you would have come into the first court, which was called the court of the Gentiles, and everybody could go into that court. The next court that you came into was called the court of the Jews, and if you were Jewish, you were allowed in that court. Gentiles could not go any farther. The next court was called the court of the men. Excuse me, the court of the women. And it was only ladies and men were allowed in there. So-called because it was the last court that women were allowed in. Then you got the court of the men. Only the men are allowed there. And then you get into the temple. Only the priests are allowed into the first room. And then the Holy of Holies, only the great high priest on the day of atonement. What the temple was set up to communicate both with the veils and with these different courts that shrunk who could get closer and closer to God is simply this. It was saying God's presence is holy and you're not allowed but so far. In fact, when you get to that final veil, even if you're a priest, you're not allowed in. Even if you're the great high priest, you're not allowed in except for one day, the Day of Atonement. Everybody else has got to stay out. You are not welcome. But when Jesus tore the veil, his body torn first, and then the veil torn, the message that God was sending is that you're welcome. You're not only welcomed, you are called. I want you in the Holy of Holies. Not just priests, not just folks who are religious. I want all of you in. But I know you can't earn your way in. You can't be good enough to get in. That's why my son took all of your sin on the cross, all of the punishment, all the guilt, all the shame, so that he can welcome you in and you can answer my call to come into my presence. John's Gospel, chapter 14, and verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The use of I am the way, just a simple article in our language, the. But in the Greek language, it means the only way. I am the only way, and the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, hey, I am the way into the presence of God. I am the way into a relationship with God. But the cost to enter into God's presence is high. It costs Jesus his life. It costs Jesus' separation with the Father. And every time we go to the Lord in prayer, and every time we enter his presence, we need to remember that we don't just glibly walk into his presence Because the cost to get us in there was high. It's free for us. That's because Jesus paid the cross. Sin always comes with inflation. Sin always comes with continual inflation. But Jesus had the capacity and the ability to pay it all. To pay it all off so that we could come into God's presence. So when we come, know that we come, yes, free of charge. But we come because Jesus Paid the cost. Now, what are we going to find when we come into His presence? When you walked into that holy of holies that day, if you'd walked in there after that veil was torn, again, it was torn and you would have looked in there. But what would you have seen when you looked in there? You would seemingly have seen nothing. Nothing. For years and years in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant had been in the Holy of Holies. But by the time you get to Herod's temple, we're not sure what had happened to the Ark. Some scholars believe that it was buried in secret somewhere. Others believe that it was destroyed. So there is nothing in the room. I mean, you would have stood there looking into this room through this torn veil, and you would have said, hey, there's nothing in there. But often what is empty to the human eye disguises what God's doing. That room was filled with the presence of the Lord. Folks, the places in your life that seem empty, take a second look. Ask God to help you discern the empty place. Because God is often tremendously at work in an empty place. And that was the case when Jesus rose from the dead. Because in the resurrection we find what is in the presence of God. Matthew's Gospel chapter 28 is the story of the resurrection. And in the resurrection we find what is in the presence of God. What do we expect when we walk into the presence of God? Matthew's Gospel chapter 28 beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath... For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen. As He said, Come, see the place where He lay. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. What will you and I find in the presence of the Lord? What will you and I discover and what can we experience when we do walk into the Holy of Holies, into His presence? Because you see, what Jesus did to that tomb was that He transformed that tomb into a Holy of Holies. Just a regular old tomb that had been donated on His behalf... But He, by His power and glory and resurrection power, transformed that cave into a holy of holies. So what did those disciples discover on that first resurrection morning? First of all, we will find in His presence light. It says that the angel descended and was there in great light. Light heals, light warms, and life. light exposes things. What do we discover in the presence of God? We discover His healing. We discover His strength. We discover the warmth of His love. And His light also exposes in our lives that which is sinful, that which needs to be repented of. Sometimes we don't always enjoy the presence of the Lord because of what the presence of the Lord exposes in our lives. Sometimes we may even run from the light of God in our lives because of that light makes us uncomfortable, but that light takes us to the next discovery we have in the presence of the Lord and that is liberation. You see, the light of Jesus acts to liberate us from the power of sin. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so what he seeks to do in his presence is free us from sin, free us from shame, free us from guilt, and free us from separation from him. He seeks to free us so that we can know him, we can love him, and we can serve him. Anytime the Lord goes to work in our lives, and he begins to show us through the light of his presence, a place where we are in bondage, Sometimes it's the bondage of fear. Sometimes it's the bondage of sin. But wherever that bondage is that He begins to show us, it's because He wants to liberate us. He wants to set us free. He doesn't want us to live and work in that bondage anymore. He wants us to live in the freedom that He's got for us. And so move with the Lord as He begins a work of liberation in us. And sometimes we struggle with that because we want to hold on to the bondage. As weird as that sounds, we want to hold on to what is keeping us enslaved instead of letting it go and giving it over to Him. But let Him liberate you from whatever He wants to liberate you from. It is a place of light. The presence of God is a place of liberation. The presence of God, third, is a place of transformation. In His presence, we are being transformed to be like Jesus. We do not go into His presence to transform Him or change Him. We go into His presence to be changed by Him. Let me say that again. We do not go into the presence of the Lord to change Him. Prayer is not about me trying to change God or to get God over on my side or to get God to do what I want Him to do. Prayer is the place and the time for God to change me, for me to be transformed and to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I go into prayer, we're not trying to get the Lord to think like us and act like us. We're saying, Lord, help me think like you and act like you. And so the presence of God is a place for us to be transformed, to be like Him. Now, that takes time. That takes work. When I go into the presence of the Lord, if I'm only giving God a few seconds or a few minutes, that's not a lot of transformation that's going to take place. That's why Paul says to pray continually. The idea is to practice the presence of God, of being in His presence daily... One of the reasons we're doing these 40 days of devotionals is to be in the presence of the Lord every day so that He can take me and change me and make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I know when I've been in His presence because I am becoming more like Him. And so what God wants us to do in His presence is to allow Him to work in us, to transform us, to change us, to be in that process of changing us and making us more like Jesus. And folks, the places in our lives that are the strongholds in our lives where Satan has gotten the biggest grip in us, those are the places that are going to take the longest for transformation. And the transformation process is not always easy. But those places in our lives, whether it's a place where we struggle with pride or with fear and anxiety or a particular sin, or a habit, or addiction, whatever. It takes sometimes a while. Give God time. Give God place, because that's part of letting Him be Lord of our lives. And as we do that, He is going to transform us and make us like His Son. The presence of God is a place of light. It is a place of liberation. It is a place of transformation. And finally and foremost, it is a place of worship. It is a place of worship. Now, I want you to see what builds up to the worship here that morning. Verse 6, the angel says, excuse me, verse 5, do not fear. Do not fear. Don't run from this experience. Run into this experience. Verse 6, he gives them truth. He is risen. He has risen. Live in that truth. Next, see the place where he lay, verse 6. See the place where he lay. In other words, come in here and see his power on display. The body is not laying here anymore. He's gone. That is the power of the resurrection. See his power. Verse 7, he says, go out and tell others what you have experienced. In verse 8, notice what they did. It says that they went out with fear and joy. Now, this is a different type of fear. It's what I like to call godly fear. They went out with an awesome, deep sense of respect because they had seen resurrection power on display. They went out of there with joy. And follow me on this. They felt the joy in them, and it's the joy of the worth. The worth of knowing how much Jesus loved them. That he loved them and that he was alive and present loving them. He wasn't just loving them as a corpse hanging from a cross. They realized that he was love that was resurrection love. He was alive loving them. Folks, Jesus does not love you from history. He loves you in the present. He loves you in today. He wants you to experience Him today. And He wants you to experience the worth that you have. It is not a worth that you and I have because we stand in a mirror and talk ourselves into feeling worthy. It is not a worth that we have to have people around us tell us all the time how awesome and epic we are. You can't get any more awesome and epic. epic than the son of God dying on the cross for you and for me so you feel your worth because we are loved by him and cherished by him and he died and rose again that's the kind of joy that they went out of there with but notice what they do when they encounter him it says that they fall on their knees and they grasp his feet it's fascinating the use of the, the Greek language there is the idea that they literally reached out suddenly, spontaneously, and took intensely took hold of his feet. What were they saying? First of all, they were saying, We're just humble before you. We are just humbled before you. You're the Son of God. You've risen from the dead. You've died on the cross. Man, that we just got to get on our faces before you and humble ourselves before you. But the second thing that they were doing is they were just worshiping him. They were experiencing his worth. I I can't stress this enough. It says they came up, took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. They didn't try to get up in his face. They got up in his feet. Do you hear me? They did not get up in his face. They got up. Up in His feet, they took hold of His feet. You see, worship begins at the place of His feet. Worship begins at the place of me getting before Him in humility and seeing His worth. And beginning to adore Him for who He is and what He has done. When our prayers try to start out with us getting in God's face and telling Him what we want, they go nowhere. When our prayer life begins at His feet, prayer goes everywhere. Because being in the presence of God is foremost worshiping Him. I want you to think about this with me. When they took hold of His feet, And again, the use of the the Greek word there, speaks to grasp. But it wasn't like they just sort of lightly touched his feet. It is the idea that they intensely grabbed hold of his feet. What would they have felt? A number of things. But one thing, they would have felt the the dryness of a guy who had walked for three and a half years all over the place ministering to people. They would have felt the work those feet had done. Getting to people. But second, they would have felt where the nail went through those feet, holding him to the cross. And if that doesn't make you worship, I don't know what won't. If that won't make us worship, I don't know what will. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to invite you right now, with God, to imagine yourself in His presence. Knowing His light, knowing His liberation, knowing Him transforming you to be like His Son. But above all else, that we will know what it is in these moments of silent prayer To worship Him. Allow God to use the gift of imagination. To imagine you, me, there that day, in that garden. Reaching out. Bowing on our knees. And touching His feet. And let me just encourage you in prayer right now to worship Him. And let me encourage you as you continue in prayer that if there's any place in our lives that the Lord is saying, I want to give you liberation in that place. I want to liberate you from pride or sin or an addiction or fear or whatever it might be to show that to you and to let him begin, invite him to begin that process of liberation. In just a moment, we will sing, and as we do, I want to invite you to continue to worship the Lord and talk with Him about whatever you need to talk with Him about and listen to whatever He wants to say to you. If you are here and you need to trust Christ as your Savior and decide, today I want to follow Jesus and serve Jesus, then I invite you to come as we sing. And I would love to pray with you about making life's most important decision. If you were listening through social media, we want to invite you to just wherever you are. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you, and I want to serve you, and I want to walk with you. Lord, have your way with us in these moments, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, and come if you will.